right. Well, we'll let always give uh, time for the crowd to come in here. Uh, Rachel will probably type in that she always does. If you want to ask a question to our wonderful guests this evening, please type it there in the chat. And occasionally, if there's something that, that kind of goes back and forth, when, if you raise your hand, we can unmute you and, and you can actually talk. But we'll see how it goes. So, um, all right. Well, let's just get started here. We've got two wonderful guests this evening. Um, Robin O'Brien, who's been on before. And a gentleman by the name of Chip Commons that's not been on, but uh, we're going to learn all about what Chip's doing. It's 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 just incredible the people you run into. I've never met Chip, but uh, we're going to learn a lot more about him. So uh, here we go. Um, giddy up, let's go, Robin. You know the drill. What's on your mind right now? You know, right now, I think there's so much coming at all of us so fast, and the ability to process that can be pretty intense sometimes. And especially when we've been sort of set in our ways with a certain way of seeing the world or a certain way of doing things that I'm in the middle of writing the second book right now. And so it's speaking to a lot of emotions that you can go through. And sometimes those are hard emotions and we tend to want to not deal with the hard emotions. And um, I'm just aware of how much kindness is needed as we all really start to move through a lot of the changes that are in front of us right now, because there are a lot of changes coming at everybody pretty quickly. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, there is. And, and it's um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if geometric is the right word, but it is happening, happening very, very quickly. Yes. Very quickly. And I mean, I think part of it's technology. I think part of it is just this accelerating rate of change we're seeing across all these different industries it's impacting all of us in all of these different ways. Our families are changing all the time. Um, and that, you know, just to, to be mindful that everyone we know is going through something probably pretty big. Um, yeah. And the more that we can sort of have that empathy and kindness, I'm realizing the better for all of us. Yeah. Chip, tell us what what is on your mind right now, Chip? Right now, what's on my mind is pulling together folks like you over the next three days and doing a wonderful uh, Art Day Impact Summit that's going to highlight the solutions to all of these things that are uh, worrying us so much. Uh, what worries me the most is particularly the uh, buildup of uh, pollution in that little blue strip behind my head here on my <laughs> image that is creating some... Uh, feedback loops and tipping points that are uh, forcing us into a, uh, a very radical uh, shifting of our climate. Yeah. And, uh, we all know that 2023 is really when the pigeons uh, sort of came home to roost and all the climate models that we've been talking about are, are frighteningly more accurate than we were hoping that they would be. So, you know, my little uh, running line these days is that, uh, you know, 2003 is the year that climate change, you know, kicked the door in, uh, sat down at the table, threw all the food all over the floor and uh, is eating our lunch too. So we have really got to uh, uh, dial up our implementation strategies. And that's why I'm so excited to have you, Rick, and some of the other uh, experts in uh, regeneration technologies be attending the R-Day and talking about that because uh, I think that um, when it comes down to it, uh, pulling the carbon down into the world's soils is really what's going to make the difference. And, and, and this direct air capture and, uh, 
and uh, CCS is probably not going to work out quite as as well as the fossil fuel companies uh, would like us to believe. No, probably not. So we're going to dig deep into that in a few minutes. But I, we've got Robin on tonight also because uh, Robin and I were good friends. But we just did something very exciting. Uh, I'm going to let Robin talk about it. Uh, what what did we do last night, Robin? So we had the premiere of the amazing groundbreaking film Common Ground here in Colorado. It sold out, of course. We've added extra screenings. It's selling out in every city that it's presenting in. Mm -hmm. Seattle, Portland, Austin had 1,200 people last night. And I think the reason is because we all eat and because we all now know somebody who is suffering with some kind of disease. We're all trying to figure this out together. And the film really takes that approach. It highlights the voices of so many people, you, Carol, your family, I'm in it with my family. We have Josh and Rebecca's families. We have scientists. We have environmental leaders. We have mothers. We have fathers. We have bee experts and scientists. And I think that choir of voices is so strong and so beautiful and so powerful now. And it's resonating with consumers. It's resonating with farmers. And I think it's it's creating this moment where we are all sort of sitting down and thinking, okay, like it's really happening. It's really happening on our watch, which means we also get to participate in the solution on our watch. And as you and Gabe Brown so beautifully articulate in this film, I mean, we are literally standing on this incredible technology called soil mm -hmm. and we don't need to add any, you know, we don't need to do anything. We don't need to create any new factories for it. Like we are standing on this solution and how we treat the soil is really how we treat ourselves. It's how we treat our children. And so when we begin to recognize that responsibility and what we can actually do with this thing we have, which is our common ground, um, I think it's a really exciting opportunity. And I think that's why this film is being so widely received because people are so grateful to actually see how they can get involved and how they can participate. Yeah. And a, a shout out to Claudia. Uh, glad you're back, Claudia. Claudia is a, a longtime listener of the podcast. She's had some back issues, had some surgery. So Claudia, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, yeah. And you know what I, you know, there's so many things I like about this movie. Um, it's common ground and it's only being shown in theaters at the moment right now. But um, the, the, you know, so many times we, you, every, you, you know, pound on the table, we have to change. We have to change. Okay, fine. What's the plan? Well, I don't know, but we have to change. Well, this movie, in my opinion, describes what the problems are building up to our human health issues and climate issues. And then it gives the solutions to the problem all at the same time. So that's what I really, really like about this, about this movie. I, I do too. And I think, you know, something that's really, really important to emphasize, you know, that you and I have discussed is this is not making the perfect, the enemy of the good. This is an open invitation to participate and begin wherever you are. And that's yeah. always been my approach with food. I knew that if I said, Hey, you got to be a purist, like no one was going to listen to me. It was, here's how you can take these baby steps. Here are little things you can do yeah. to start to transition towards these better for you products. And I started with that at the consumer level and then ended up doing it also at the corporate level. And now we see a lot of interest at the policy level. And so that education has to, again, come with this sense of compassion of like, look, not everybody can afford to do everything all at once. Not every eater can afford to change everything all at once. So why in the world would we expect every farmer to change everything all at once? Right. 
And I think, you know, the beauty of this film is that that compassion that's in here basically saying, start where you stand, you know, take 40 acres and let's take those 40 acres and see what we can do. And I think you speak to that beautifully with a 40 acre challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess I need to go a little harder on that one. I had an idea about a year ago on that and I need to do something with it, but, uh, and I think I've I think I've sparked some your 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 gears are turning in there. I can see the smoke coming out your ears, but uh, but anyway, you know I it, it this is all and it's amazing how this you know this is coming together. Then Chip's big event is in a couple of days, and it, it just all wraps together. And I know I know Chip, you haven't had time to see the movie. You don't, I don't think you've had time to sleep with uh, trying to get everything prepared. Um, Tell us, uh, I'm going to do this in a little bit in reverse here. Tell us about your event coming up, Chip. Well, first of all, uh, we tried to get uh, your movie, but it was already booked across town. So we're lucky mm -hmm. we got you. <laughs> Thank you, Robin, for that. <laughs> uh, but we did get a couple of other films. I just want to quickly mention a very important movie called uh, Lakota versus the United States that uh, uh, that Mark Ruffalo is behind. And uh, we're going to show that on Sunday night here in Boulder. And then also... On Saturday night, we have to shock some people with this movie called Deep Rising, which was the Sundance environmental pick this year. And it's about the deep seabed mining issue, which is so um, important mm. because let's forget, not forget that 71% uh, uh, of the world's uh, surface is uh, the, the ocean bottom. And yep. it, it's largely pristine and untouched. So we don't want to really go down and mess around with that. Uh, Sylvia Earle is very adamant about that <laughs> on this point. And I agree with her. Um, but anyway, so we're going to start, uh, as you know, Rick, with a reception tomorrow night over at the uh, hotel uh, called the Millennium. Um, and then we're going to uh, go at eight o'clock in the morning with a, a beautiful blessing with a Native American friend uh, to set the stage for what's to come. And we're going to just start off with a bang with hydrogen. We're going to talk about hydrogen with some of the leading experts. Uh, Gary Dirks is going to be there leading that conversation he uh he was the president of bp in china for 30 years mm. and um uh you don't mess around when you get you don't mess around when you get people to come in <laughs> well we try to put experts on the stage we've sort of gotten a little bit of a reputation for that over the years and um, um and then we're going to go into a ccs and that's an interesting panel that's uh coming out of the 2030 fund uh, and they're pretty much um, adamant about outing the uh, fossil fuel industry on that issue of um, stating that, you know, don't worry about us uh, drilling as much more as we want, because we're just going to pull it out of the air and put it back in the ground. Yeah. But that's being sort of seen as a ruse at this point. Uh, that's putting it mildly. Um, but there's a lot of uh, money in the IRA uh, bill for um, carbon capture and storage. And so we need to address that issue in a real serious yeah. way. Um, and then and then we're going to switch it up a little bit and we're going to follow that with a democracy um, panel. And this is where we connect climate and democracy, which is the theme of our conference, because, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of strong feeling that we're not going to have solutions to um, climate uh, change and, and the climate crisis without a very strong democracy to implement those solutions. And so we're very. Uh, focused on that right now we uh, particularly in our country with politics where they're at i mean we all know what's going on and what happened in dc yesterday and that our government our government is basically dysfunctional mm -hmm. and so we got to get it back to functionality 
And so this might be a bit of a lesson in civics. You know, people have forgot about civics, you know, and why it is important to vote and why it's your duty to vote. And I'm not going to get on my high horse here, but but I am going to say that we're delighted that the, the Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, a good friend of mine, is coming. I love her leadership. You might have seen her quite a bit the last few years on MSNBC, standing up for democracy. She's very articulate. She goes to the mat for uh, one, you know, uh, everybody gets the right to vote and have it be counted um, and protected, that that right. Um, and then we're going to go back after that. Oh, and by the way, uh, before I get there, uh, Tim Worth, is I'm delighted he's going to moderate that panel. With Jenna and Governor uh, Ritter will be on there. Um, Amy Parsons, the president of uh, Colorado State University, we're so proud of what they're doing here, particularly in your point of focus, uh, meaning the, uh, you know, the, the uh, agricultural uh, sector uh, industry um really strong uh with that and um anyway she's brilliant she's a new president up there and uh and then after that we're going to go back over to uh climate solution with a, a panel on high voltage direct current super grid that would overlay that grid you see behind me all those those lights out there in europe well in the united states we have two, three grids you know the eastern grid the western grid and the texas grid and they don't really talk to each other very good, and they're very arcane, and they were started 100 years ago, and they sort of built up. But that, in aggregate, is responsible for approximately 40% of the carbon throughput that the United States places up in the atmosphere every year. Wow. You know, in the burning uh, of, the, of the coal and the gas and, and the oil and the shipping of that uh, and the transmitting and the line loss. So anyway, we replace that with something we call the supergrid, uh, that was kind of designed by Sandy McDonald, who's coming to present on that. And he ran NOAA, was a number two man at NOAA for many years, uh, 20 or so. And um, and that supergrid would go down our, our highway systems and our rail corridors. And it would go coast to coast, border to border, and it would allow us to decarbonize uh, our atmosphere to a great extent. So along with what you're all talking about, you know, with the uh, the, the um, regeneration of America's soils, uh, we also have to look at it from these other sectors so that we're working yeah. in and pulling. And on that super grid, I just want to finish with this, is that that would be a, constitute a true public-private partnership because the United States government controls the interstate highway system where we would put this, but then the rail corridors are controlled by the private sector. So we're trying to, you know, get these guys working together, incentivize the private sector, get the government to finance it with ta taxpayer dollars. You know, it's only going to cost two or three trillion. You know, what's that these days, anyways? You know, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, shit, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you talked about that because it's you know the World Bank has just come out with a report on what they basically call toxic subsidies, and they talk about how there's seven point three trillion dollars of subsidies that are going into these practices that we now know are degenerative. You know, they're trashing the soil, they're trashing the waterways, they're trashing the oceans. Yeah. And, you know, there's all this like, well, where are we gonna get the money? And the World Bank, you know, this isn't Greenpeace, this isn't some radical organization. The World Bank is now saying, we have $7.3 trillion. We're actually putting it into these polluting practices. What would it look like if we began to transition those subsidies to regenerative agriculture, to all of these technologies that you're talking about. And I think what's remarkable is we finally have 
institutions like that. The European Central Bank is another one. Uh, Fidelity International has also just come out with a report and 32 other asset managers, global asset managers are basically saying, we're subsidizing the wrong thing. And if you think about like, if that money, if that supply was suddenly cut off, these practices would change. Because if you're talking about Exxon, I mean, Harvard just came out with this amazing report about how Exxon scientists forecasted with just amazing accuracy the exact state of where we are today, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And so they've known and they have just like the food companies have the ability to grow stuff that's highly processed and also grow stuff that's organic. The energy companies are the same. They have, you know, one side of the model that it can be highly polluting. And then they've got another side of the model that is renewable and regenerative. And I think, you know, when we really stop and say, like, if we could, I think if three of us could control those subsidies and say, you know, instead of them going into stuff that's trashing the planet that our kids and our grandkids are going to inherit, what would it look like if that money supply changed and went into these regenerative and renewable practices? And it's fascinating to me who is now starting to come around the table for that yeah. conversation. Yeah. What, what do you think about that, Chip? I just think that, you know, we got to start looking at, you know, the money that we are spending to, um, quite frankly, collapse, uh, you know, the biosphere and really and really understand that, yeah. you know, I mean, not too many people know about the sacred cows of the of the fossil fuel industry, which are the intangible uh, drilling deduction and the depreciation allowance. Now, they don't ever talk about those and they've been on the books for 100 years. It's like the 1873 mining law or 78, whatever it is. But, you know, we, we, we need to know that we're we're spending billions, trillions of dollars globally to prop up these industries that are, uh, you know, that are literally killing us. And it's time to stop. We've got to stop the burning. We just got to stop the burning. Yeah. And, well, and, I, you know, I t what I'm what I'm hearing here, it's amazing. But the parallel between what Chip, what you're talking about and the parallel what we're talking about on the farm, it's identical here. We've got to get the masses to just realize that change is good. Change is difficult, but change is good. And, and let's don't jump in head first. We got to step in and take little small pieces and get comfortable and get good at what we're doing and then move it out across, across a bigger, a bigger area. It's the same thing. We're talking about the exact same thing. Absolutely. I think it takes a lot of humility to admit what you don't know. And, you know, to what Chip is doing, what the film does is it creates that safe place for people to sort of come in and learn. Yeah. And, you know, I say this with four kids now that have all out of high school and almost out of college. And it's like the first 22 years of your life is in learning, you know, and you're just fully supported as a student and you're supposed to not know. You're supposed to be curious and not know. And then somewhere in adulthood, like we're just supposed to have all the answers. And I think that sort of having all the answers attitude doesn't afford us this opportunity to, to remain as students. And I think, you know, to me, the most amazing examples of leaders are those who also are teacher and student. And I think right now we're all being called to, to, to unlearn certain things and learn some new things for the first time. I mean, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I didn't know any of this stuff. You know, I grew up in a very, there was one way that we thought about these things. And so to explore with curiosity, not judgment, that was what Walt Whitman said. And then Ted Lasso said it. And, you know, I think that that's really probably one of the most important things we can do is how can we be 
more curious and less judgmental. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Chip, let's, let's go back in time. If we, if you don't mind, when did you, uh, when did you think you wanted to try to, you know, let get people to understand we've got to save this, this planet we're on. I mean, when, when did these feelings or when did all this hit you? Well, it's interesting. You know, I have a strange way of coming to my work. Uh, it was certainly not planned. Uh, I'm a filmmaker in my other, you know, hat. Mm. And, okay. uh, you know, I was, I worked with Luis Hoyos on Racing Extinction, one of the producers of that movie. Um, but I started my first film actually back in 1997 and I made a little jazz film with Herbie Hancock and, and, uh, Wayne Shorter and some other jazz masters and we were lucky that Michael Douglas was hanging around listening to the performances we said hey you want to narrate he goes I'd love to you know so it's yeah. <laughs> a movie I ever made it was a little bit overwhelming for me you know had him in it but it was you know it was a nice little film it went on out on PBS and um, if you ever anybody wants to see my filmography you can go to americanspiritproductions.com I don't push that out there you have to spell it all out and you know no but anyway you can see them and I I try to put some of them out so you can watch them. But um, I was I was hired to make a film, a movie in 2003 by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory about the uh, the, the first utility scale wind turbine to be owned by a Native American tribe. And that was mm. the Spud Turbine up in uh, uh, South Dakota, just over the border from Valentine, Nebraska on the Rosebud Res. And it was in the doing that I understood all of a sudden, wham, the light came on, you know, why uh, big wind was important and also why social justice and economic justice for some of the poorest, most abused people in our country is so important. And so I really threw myself into that and um, <clears throat> and began wor working with the Intertribal Council on Utility Policy, which constituted about 15 tribes. And crisscrossing into you know, North and South Dakota, parts of Montana, Wyoming, Nebraska, and and that's the area they called Saudi Arabia wind, which could actually um, supply over half of America's um, electricity needs easily, um, wow. just, just on wind energy. Were we to build out that resource and decarbonize the planet, like we were talking about earlier with the grid, you know, we want to decarbonize this uh, this country that's the biggest carbon emitter along with China. Anyway. Point is, long story short, um, that film we showed to the Aspen City Council in session, some of the council people said, we want to buy one of those. And we said, well, it's, you know, million and a half dollars. And back then, you know, it was, you know, this is before, back then it was 2,500 megawatts of wind installed yeah. capacity in the United States. Now it's about over 200,000. So anyway, I was talking to the mayor afterwards and I said, you know, Aspen ought to have a renewable energy day. And she said, yeah, we should and you should do it and got to do it before the end of, you know, August. I said, what do you mean? This is almost July. You know? And uh, so, you know, she said, I'll give you some money. So we put this beautiful little thing together and we showed some movies in the, including that one in the uh, real or opera house. Uh, we had a beautiful, beautiful bluebird day and, and it was kind of a street fair with some, you know, Rocky mountain Institute and solar energy international and some of the other local orgs that were on it back in 2004, when nobody even knew what a carbon footprint was actually yeah. wasn't in the vernacular yet. Um, and that's when we had our little humble beginning. And then, you know, when Ted Turner showed up for the first time in 2008, he kind of put us on the map. And when he came back, you know, four more times and brought President Carter with them in 2014, we had we had fully arrived, you know, with, with senators, and governors and, you know, 
when Avatar was in the movie theater, James Cameron came and talked to us. And so we just had a really good lucky streak. Um, 16 consecutive Art Day summits uh, we've produced in Aspen, Colorado, until we got knocked out in 2019 by the COVID, like everybody else in the convening business. And then it's taken us three years to come back. And this is our comeback year. This is the, the COVID wow. comeback. And we cho chose to come down to Boulder uh, because we want to engage um, more of the population base, you know, that's accessible here. Whereas up in Aspen, we're a little bit um, isolated, let's say, you know, both uh, physically yeah. and economically. <laughs> so anyway, um, anyway, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the long and the short of it, I guess. Well, that, yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, that's incredible that, that, that it's just amazing how you, you, you meander around and through life and then things just fall into place. And here, you know, here we are. And now this is what number is a 17 year or well, it's, it's our 17th physical convening and it's our oh. 20th anniversary, actually. 20th anniversary. Okay, great. Yeah. And I got, did three I'm, virtuals in there. Yeah, and I got invited to the 20th anniversary. It's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but also want to note that um, we 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 actually formalized the American Renewable Energy Institute along the way uh, in 2011. We finally parked ourselves in our own institute instead of being a you know fiscally sponsored uh, project of somebody else. And uh, and so I have a really I'm proud of my board of trustees. We've got some pretty amazing people like Sylvia Earle and Wesley Clark is on there. And oh wow others and um you know and we're committed to this concept of american renewable energy and why it's important yeah so. yeah i just think you know it's it's a combination of conviction faith tenacity a little bit of stubbornness thrown in there um like the dog that just you know isn't going to let go of that thing and i think you know thank goodness for that because um that unique combination that formula that makes you you chip and you you rick and you know i have those same components in me um i think it's when when a movement's time finally has come those roots are really deep and the respect that you have in the community from wesley clark and from a lot of these business leaders when the time is then right then you have those it's so centering and it's so anchoring to have those roots yeah. and we see the same thing in the ag space. I think what's unique about what's happening right now is we do have a beautiful balance emerging of political leaders. And it's the first time we've had that. Um, you know, here in Colorado, Congressman Nagoose was the very first member of Congress to introduce a piece of legislation around soil health, which is crazy because FDR talked about this, you know, back in the yep. 1930s about basically what a nation does to the soil, it does to itself. You destroy the soil, you're destroying yourself. And here we are now, you know, almost 100 years later with Congressman Goose introducing this piece of legislation on soil health. And he got immediate, immediate bipartisan support. And when I asked him how, you know, especially in this just highly polarized political environment, he just said, like, who, who's not for soil health? And I totally agree. And so, you know, I think it's, again, it's why the film is called Common Ground, but what are these things that actually unite us, you know, in clean air, clean water, clean soil, those unite us. And so, you know, we can really work towards that with the way we think about agriculture and the way that we think about industry. And there definitely are some entrenched interests that are not happy with this. And I think it's really interesting when you look at the data, 
S&P 100 companies, for example, 94% of S&P 100 companies acknowledge that climate is impacting their business models, droughts, fires, floods, whatever it is, the insurance costs associated with all this stuff. 94% of these companies are acknowledging that it's impacting their business models. And yet 30% of those companies are still lobbying against policy that actually would support and protect them and mitigate, you know, some of this risk. So it really sort of shows this weird delusional corporate thinking yeah. that's happening. Yeah. It's fascinating. It is. So, ahead, so yeah, go ahead, Chip. Well, I just wanted to mention as Robin was talking, I was thinking about the Dust Bowl in the 1930s because FDR was responding to that, you know, event. And that's the first actual man-made climate catastrophe. And it was sort of a foreshadowing of what was to come a hundred years down the road. You know, it's but, in the film. It's in the film. Oh, it is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why am I not surprised? Okay. Well, you know, I remember I was at the premiere of um uh Ken Burns did something on this. And he showed it in uh, as part of what his you know whole thing in D.C. And I went to that. And I remember looking at at the stunning film of all you know how he likes to get all that old footage and you're right in there with the you know back in the Dust Bowl. But you know, but America's topsoil blew away. Why yeah. was that? Because we were doing bad agricultural planet practices, and we had killed off the 10 million bison that kept it intact. You know yeah. that had roamed around in there. And so we should learn from these kinds of things. And um, hopefully we are. But I think, you know, I mean, Rick and I were talking about this earlier today. I'm a, let's say I'm a farmer and I'm doing what my grandfather taught me, what my great grandfather taught him. And that was tilling. And my family and the resources that we've had as a family, all that has gone into buying equipment to till. And then all of a sudden, you start to hear this messaging, you know, that maybe it was a tilling from the 1930s that created the conditions for the Dust Bowl. And then here we go again, you know, with all of this discussion around tillage. And again, I think you have to think about how hard that would be to hear if that's all you've ever known and been taught by the people that you love the most. And then all of your family's resources have gone into investing in infrastructure and equipment to do something that you're now being told is wrong. And so that's where I think, you know, when we talk about these changes and introducing these changes, there it is, there's so many factors here. It's economic, it's financial, it's social, psychological, it's mental, it's family. I mean, we all have family members that are hard to sit down at the table with, and then you throw something like this into it. And so again, to have that kind of compassion and sensitivity to, while yes, the solution is really simple on the one hand, the complexity of, of what's involved underneath is not. And I think when we try to oversimplify these things without understanding sort of the human piece of it, um, that's where it just, it stalls and we kind of hit the wall and and you can't, you, you're not able to connect and get through. Yeah, I think Chip, you probably could see the same thing, right? In, in the energy sector? Oh yeah, I mean, Look, I'm reminded of a quote from uh, Upton Sinclair. I mean, I'm going to butcher this pretty badly, but it, you know, if a man's salary is yeah. uh, tied to him not understanding something, it's very difficult to get to him to understand that very thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you did a pretty good job of that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Something, like that, you know. And so I think that you know, and and the other piece of that 
we have to admit, and we have to, you know, the oil companies always said, well, you know, you guys are buying the products. You know, we're just serving a, a demand. That's all yeah. this is, yeah. you know, and <laughs> it's really not all this is, but 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 it's true that we are consuming the gasoline that's manufactured and the other fossil fuel products. Now we can say, well, we don't know any better or we can't help it and we got to send our kids to school and I got to make a living and all of those things. But at the end of the day, we've got to admit to ourselves in our heart of hearts that science and physics don't really care whether you believe in them or not. And, and what's happening is happening and we must respond to that you know, this existential crisis that's upon us now. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to water it down, as you can tell. <laughs> I keep coming. No. So, so, Chip, take take us through, I mean, what, what's hap what happens in a, in a, uh, an X, I'm just going to say Exxon, because that's the first name that came to my mind. What are they, at a board meeting, what are they, what are they, when they want to talk about regenerative, let's say, what or green energy, what what's the conversation? Well, you know, I, I wish I was in those, uh, you know, those board meetings or those committee meetings that they do actually address that, because I think a lot of it is greenwashing. Honestly, they'll say one thing, but the action speaks the loudest. Yeah. Right? And, um, you know, so I don't see a lot of um, oomph in those claims to want to, you know, all the money that they spend on on going green and, and making the transition when they know that they're they're cutting their own legs out from under them in terms of their core revenue centers yeah. okay and so you know this is a bottom line issue here and they're trying to you know they're trying to adhere to uh you know dictates of shareholder values and increasing you know the earnings on a quarterly profit basis i mean the whole system is flawed you know let's go back to that book that amory and hunter and paul hawken wrote called natural capitalism you know, which is basically saying that capitalism is, 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 is founded on a false precept, that there are endless supply of raw materials, you know, trees, water, fish, uh, atmosphere, and also that capitalism is based on an ever-expanding consumer base, because, you know, now <laughs> we're reaching the limits of growth. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a great book once written by uh, Donna. Donatella Meadows, I think is her name, by the same title, The Limits to Growth, back in the 70s. And, and that's what she was talking about. You know, this cannot go on forever. And not only that, but when you look at it, <clears throat> you know, when we started drilling in earnest about 100 years ago, say, um, a little, little longer, maybe 1915 is a good benchmark for that. Well, the world population was probably about 2 billion people, maybe, maybe two and a half. And so the two hockey stick graphs that we have to be aware of is, you know, the carbon up in the atmosphere and the human population going from two to eight in the same mm -hmm. amount of time. Mm -hmm. So both are exponential and one feeds the other, I think pretty much uh, allows the other to exist. Now we've had a couple of world wars in there and a bunch of other stuff has happened, you know, that, oh. uh, you know, gets us a little distracted from from how, you know, how capitalism, democracy, socialism, communism, all the rest of the isms, you know, you get into the religious sectors, how they all fit together to create this world. But throughout it all, and that's why I love your work, the farmer must farm. 
and the food must grow and the people must eat. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think when you pick up on that thread of natural capitalism and we think about this and the farmer knows this better than anyone is that we don't put clean air and clean water and clean soil on a balance sheet. And yet every company on the planet is dependent on those three things. And if they actually had to be valued for the assets that they are and stewarded for the assets that they are for every business, we'd be operating under a totally different model. And, you know, there are plenty of statistics that will show like none of these industries, not a single one of these companies would be profitable if they actually had to account for the natural resources that they're consuming. And I think, you know, our obsession with GDP and, you know, sort of growth at all costs. And so it doesn't matter if you are an agrochemical company that is selling a pesticide or weed killer that we know has been proven to be detrimental, like that's gonna boost GDP. It doesn't matter if you're selling something that we know is gonna trash the waterways around the Midwest, that's still gonna boost GDP. And I think that that calculation is flawed because we're not actually, you know, we're actually stealing from the future. And so we don't discount that contribution to our economy and we should at this point, we know enough now about these externalized costs. So it's like, okay, yeah, if you're gonna say this company is boosting GDP, these are the externalized costs. So this is how we're gonna discount it as opposed to a farm operation that is actually regenerating these natural resources, that is actually regenerating the soil so that bees come back and pollinators come back and all of these animals come back and this beautiful, what's it called? The trophic cascade, right? Yeah. 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 To see that come back. And it's like, that is so additive. So to me, that, that GDP over here should have like an exponential qualifier as a boost on it as opposed to this guy over here that's trashing the planet, this one should be discounted. And yet we don't do that. And it's so obvious at this point why we're not saying, you know, these two are not equal. These are not equal contributors to GDP, yeah. but unfortunately that's how we count them. Yeah. We've got, uh, I've got, I think it's Jim. Again, I don't know why I don't see the whole name, but I think it's my good friend, Jimmy, Jimmy Emmons. that's on. How you doing, Jimmy? It's the same story for people in energy, health, agriculture, um, they have to admit when we were doing this all wrong from the very way we were all taught. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and again, there's so many parallels to this. I'm, I'm so glad that two of you are on here this evening because it's amazing. You, I mean, yeah, Chip, I mean, it's amazing. Chip, when you're telling the energy story, I'm sitting here thinking this is exactly what's going on in the farming sector. So, you know. But okay, so Chip, what what I got this, you know, there's so many questions I want to ask. What is a metric, in your opinion, what is a good metric that that maybe is not being utilized or utilized enough today to to determine how much harm we are creating to the planet? At this point, I'd like to go to uh, the indigeneity of the conversation and talk a little bit about, okay, let's start with, we have a superstar joining us at Arde. I'm sorry you're gonna miss uh, Shie Bastida because Shie is Otomi Toltec and she's 21, but I met her when she was 16 and organizing that march in Manhattan that Greta came across in her boat, you know, and 
you know, wobbled off the deck and then kind of led down Manhattan. And that led to a lot of other things. About 7 million people around the world picked up and didn't march on that day. About a half a million of us in Manhattan. But anyway, Xi'e's rocket ship took off and she's now being called by the president to address and uh, speak at the top and at the United Nations regularly and is one of the top, you know, people um, out there. But why? Because of her indigeneity, how she sees it. You know, she talks about biocultural, bioregional, you know, these kind of terms that have always been in the lexicon and the understanding of indigenous peoples, not just Native Americans, but all over the planet. And, and that is something that I think we've got to pay special attention to, the balance of nature. Um, yeah. You mentioned the, the Tropic Cascade a minute ago, uh, Robin, and I'm, uh, I'm very tuned into that because we have a, a panel on the uh, repatriation of the gray wolf into the state of Colorado that's actually starting in December. And it took uh, a group of us uh, starting way back in 2016 to, to uh, gather uh, 200,000 signatures and spend $6 million, raise it, spend it to get this into law that we are going to put the gray wolf back into the woods because that apex predator will put the balance back into nature, bring back the wolf, bring back the balance. And this is very uh, controversial and the ranchers do not like this, uh, a lot of them, because you know they don't like the wolf for all kinds of various reasons. Most of which I think have to do with just the history of how, you know, the mythology around the, you know, you know, the big bad wolf and Little Red Riding Hood. And, you know, they'll laugh and want to go out back and have a fight about what I'm saying right now. But some of them. But the reality is that um, the wolf is very, very good for the health of the woods. And so when it comes to uh, the, the Native American or the indigenous people's uh, understanding of the world, I think we would do a, a, a great service to ourselves to pay close attention to what they're saying. Because mm -hmm. these are the strategies, these are the systems that we need to remember to bring back, bring ourselves back into balance. And so we can change yeah. it. I just, I couldn't agree more. And I think about how so many of our systems have discriminated, stolen, eliminated, marginalized so many different voices and demographics to where it's one homogenous thread. And if nature's taught us anything, it's that homogenous systems fail. And so I feel that, you know, part of my responsibility is just to sit down and listen and wherever I can. And Rick does a good job and Chip, you do an amazing job of this, of, you know, really offering and allowing and inviting and supporting these voices so that we can remember that just as there is biodiversity that's so critical to our survival, diversity is at the core of that word. And so those the that wisdom and that experience and that influence to make sure that we weave it back into this fabric that's way stronger than any one thread. Yeah. And in the film and Common Ground, they, the producers have done an amazing job of um, really collaboratively bringing these voices together. And one of the most powerful moments in the film to me is when a young woman is on her farm with her horses and she says she's the 125th generation Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's to, to fathom the expansiveness of that wisdom and that experience 
And to question why that's not at every single table, especially in these agricultural land stewardship, soil stewardship conversations. Um, I know for the, you know, for the three of us, it's, it's pretty obvious. And that is actually part of our role, I think, is educators or teachers, whatever it is, you know, to continue to expand the voices because this choir is actually really powerful when you bring everybody together. Yeah. Well, and and we got a, I got a couple people I need to address in the chat, but Chippa, you mentioned the word balance there. And, and we talk about balance all the time in the agricultural sector. You know, you have to get the balance within the microbial biome. You've got to get balance in your diversity. And, and that's so important to, and I think you're right. I think we've kind of, sometimes we've, we've kind of missed out on that and we've got to step back and, and take a breath and say, hang on here. Let's uh, let's try to pull all this back in and let let's let's just slow down a little bit and uh, get back to our roots. So, yeah, hang hang with hang with me here, guys. Um, so I think it's Michael. The current agricultural production production system would would uh, would shown to also be unprofitable if the government subsidy ceased to exist. Yep. So and and. And Chip, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't there also massive um, government subsidy in this in the energy sectors as well? Um, oh my gosh! I mean, that, well, I, I mentioned earlier the that uh, you know the intangible drilling deduction and the yeah. appreciation allowance that the, all companies enjoy, but there's so many other um, ways of that uh, that they're getting subsidized, and uh, the numbers are unbelievable when you when you count them all up. I mean, it's in the trillions and trillions of dollars. Yep, it's, yep. And so to think that we could, um, you know, uh, address that, it's really difficult though, with the way that the system is set up, you know, because the oil lobby has so much influence in, in Washington and, and it's really, um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I met recently, I just want to, tell you that I met recently Jane Fonda at, at a, a Jane Pack funder and, and she blew my mind. I mean, I was like, oh my God, I mean, you're everything, all the movie stuff. And she, you know, but now I understand why she won three Oscars. I mean, that woman is, is committed and, and uh, now she's 85 and she's committing herself to this whole, uh, for the rest of her life, this climate uh, conversation and getting arrested, you know, as an 85 year old grandma and everything. <laughs> And um, but but putting the spotlight and using her celebrity to put the spotlight on this conversation, you know, uh, front and center. And I'd like to see I'd like to work with you, uh, you farmers uh, to, to to elevate this particular issue. I don't think people know where their food comes from, by and large. No. Uh, it's kind of like they don't know where their electricity comes from. They think it comes out of a hole in the wall with three little funny, you know, lug things. And um, and it would be really important um, to start urban farming, suburban farming, you know, sub and get those subsidies that we have for the oil companies over to subsidizing the family farmers. You know, um, I know Ted's daughter, Laura, called me up recently and said, talked all about the great successes that they're experiencing up on one of the ranches in Wyoming. I mean, Montana that have a bison and uh and, and made a claim that they had, you know, grown the topsoil 10 inches in two years. And I'm like, oh my God, that's unbelievable, really? And um, and I hope it's true, you know, because uh, uh, it's it's really important 
to get people. But her passion was really pointed towards getting the family farmers and the small farmers profitable and, and having them have an economic base yeah. of growth. And yeah. we have tremendous. You know, I'll let you talk about this, please. Well, Rick. hey, Chip, hang on just a second. We Robin has to get going. And I just want to I want us both to be able to say goodbye and thank her, Robin. Thanks for coming on again. It's it's uh, it's always an honor to have you on here. So thank you so much. Well, yeah, and I'm so excited you guys know each other now. So, Chip, I'm really sorry I can't be there this weekend, but I'm really glad that it resulted in this connection between the two of you guys, because I think there's clearly a longer term trajectory here. And um, as always, just super grateful for both of you and your just complete dedication to all of this work. Um, and for everybody listening, it just takes a lot of courage and a lot of fortitude and finding the right people. And we invite you to be part of it. You know, Rick is on the ground, knows this stuff better than anybody. And clearly Chip does too. So thank you for whoever's listening. And if I can help ever in any way, just let me know. But thanks so much, you guys. And Rick, it's always so good to see you. Thank you. Thanks. Good to see you, Robin. Bye. Bye. All right, Chip. So there's another question it's from my good friend, Lauren. Um, let, let's go back, Chip. Please speak more about the super grid and will that include newer battery technologies? What do you know about the, the, the story? Battery, storing electricity. So battery storage is obviously part of the uh, solution to our uh, transmission uh, uh, problem. Uh, the inequities of uh, intermittent solar and uh, wind renewable energies are always the challenge. And so <clears throat> that's why, um, you know, normally they're always considered peaker power and never considered base load. And we want to switch that around. We want to get oh. our base load energy 24 7, 365 out of the sun and out of the wind. So while the wind's not always blowing, it's always blowing somewhere. And while the sun's not always shining, uh, we can, we have learned how to store. Uh, the energy when uh, the daylight happens. So, so batteries, yes, will be a part of this super grid um, as they're part of all of the microgrid strategies that we hear about. Um, but we also know that batteries take a lot of, you know, rare earth elements and those are required in very, you know, unsustainable ways. Um, and so we're looking to come out of the, you know, the lithium sectors and into some of these new technologies for battery storage. Um, but the super grid will be able to, um, like I said before, uh, take the power when it's uh, generated and distribute it where it's needed uh, in a coast to coast, um, mm. border to border fashion. So, so Chip, where's the energy coming from that's supplying the super grid? Well, that, um, you know, energy, <clears throat> obviously, the grid doesn't know what color electron uh, goes into it. So, you know, you can have black and brown and green. And I guess there's all kinds of other colors, yellow and blue and pink. I mean, depending on whether you're talking about nuclear power or whatever. Yeah. But um, hydro, I mean, the basic is we have uh, coal, gas, uh, hydro, nuclear um, wind, solar, geothermal. And I think I've hit the gamut there. Um, 
And and let's realize, folks, that energy efficiency is at the top of the whole spectrum. We can get more power by using less than we can by trying to figure out how to add all this all this renewable. So if we could learn how to be efficient in our behavior, that would really go a long ways. And and one of the reasons why I'm a big advocate for the transmission from ICE to EV, you know, the internal uh, combustion engine to the electric vehicle uh, and it does count where you get your cars charged up from and how they acquire that power but when it comes to the ice engine i mean think about it this is the most inefficient thing that we could have possibly invented you know you're taking four thousand pounds of rubber and steel and iron and plastic and everything else that goes into your car that's and then you put 20 gallons of gasoline in there and you're burning it to take your 200 pound body from point A to point B to get groceries or what have you. And 90% of that power is going out the tailpipe. Yeah. That's, that's just not, that's not smart. It's good. It's smart for the, the gasoline companies because they're making a lot of money, you know, burning all that carbon, but there's a better way to do it. And that's an example of how that goes rife throughout the entire system. You know, we've got to become uh, much more efficient in our management yeah and 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 chip i'll admit i you know when i think about an ev car um i'm thinking first thing that comes to my mind is is how much coal is it going to take to produce that that electricity to charge that thing but but then you put it in such good perspective we've i've never i guess i've never thought about what is the most efficient way to use that energy source and i never thought about it like that and that, that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, how efficient is solar energy? How efficient is our, our wind turbines? Well, I mean, you know, look, you have to go full cycle and understand, you know, how much carbon and how efficient is it to manufacture the materials that make the wind turbines and the nacelles and all of the components that go into a wind turbine. And then you have to look at their life cycle when they are up and operational until when they got to be replaced. And there is maintenance along the way. And the same holds true for solar panels. And I get hit by this all the time by the, uh, what do they call it? The uh, the bright green people or, uh, well, remember that movie that came out called The Human Element? And I was furious when I saw that because Michael Moore was tearing apart all of the uh, progress that we had made in the renewable sector saying that it was all for naught and it was, you know, a net net more, you know, gain in, in carbon pollution. And I don't yeah. agree with that. I, I, I adamantly I do not agree with that uh, assessment. And then also, you know, they, they really challenge the wind on the uh, how many birds they kill and so forth. And I'm not saying that these things don't kill birds, but I, I think that it's um, negligible compared to how many birds are killed in the guy wires of cell towers around the world. Okay. Yeah and by cats and all the rest of it so the point is that we look what i like to say for 20 years you know and i'll put my hat on as the chairman of the american renewable energy institute is that if you do not see renewable energy outside your back door you should be very very frightened and afraid that we're not doing enough in the time necessary to protect the future of our children it's as simple as that we cannot continue to go along this fossil fuel path, you know, on this out of control train that's picking up speed and not admit to what damage we're causing to the life support systems of the planet, you know? And so 
I mean, honestly, that's why I choose to get on these Zooms with this image behind me, because I want people to think about, first of all, how small the world is, how we're all connected. You know, it doesn't go on forever. And, um, you know, and and uh, and the fact that all life that's ever existed, that ever has been, is now and will be, occurs in that little thin strip of blue that's behind my head there. Oh. And we have to maintain that. So anyway, I, I'm a kind of a big, big picture guy, but I love bringing, you know, uh, big down to the ground when we talk to people that are so knowledgeable about the biome and about the regenerative agricultural practices and the restorative soil technologies and techniques. You know, one time we had Wes Jackson come and join us over here at our day and he came in the room and, you know, he's got the uh, land Institute out there in Kansas and he came in the room and he had a suitcase and he opened a suitcase. He unfolded a, a 30 foot tap root, you know, and put it out on the stage. <laughs> and he said, you know, now this is what plants, you know, are supposed to look like and yeah this is the power of plants yeah and explain yeah. that to us in, in real terms you know perennial annual the whole bit and yeah. so um so we are of the earth right yeah yeah i yeah. mean so so chip what do you see you know i don't know how much you can i mean you're on a pretty powerful board there chairman of a pretty powerful board and and it, it's it's kind of uh determining our future here so is there anything you can talk about? Of, of I'm, I don't know if an alternative energy is the right term to use here, but is there anything on the horizon that that is looking good to you? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of hope, and there's a lot of wisdom, and there's a lot of really smart people like yourself um, that are connecting the dots um, on the planet and pulling uh, towards a solution. So let's talk about hydrogen for a minute. Okay. So back in uh, the aughts, you know, to, when I was running around, you know, places like the Clinton Initiative and other meetings that were talking about what we needed to do back then. So we're going back in time, 13, you know, 15 years or so. Um, they were telling us then that, uh, you know, natural gas was the bridge between, you know, fossil fuels and a renewable energy future. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Because it was so much less carbon intensive. And so that's okay. Let's go for that. Well, it turned out to be a uh, uh, a false starter. Uh, it, it really wasn't the bridge to the future. It turned out that we weren't, uh, uh, you know, recording, uh, we weren't measuring the uh, fugitive emissions of Wellhead and all the other ways that this methane, which is 20 times more potent than the, uh, uh, than, than the carbon, uh, was getting released and pumped into the atmosphere. And a lot of this global warming we're experiencing in this, these accelerated feedback loops I think is due to this uh, release of the methane yeah. in the last that period of time when we punched in another couple 300,000 wells you know in the Marcellus over there in Pennsylvania and here in Colorado and the uh, Pizance and, and these other uh, uh, gas fields but but now what I like to say now is that I believe that uh, renewable energy in all of its forms is the bridge between fossil fuels and hydrogen and now hydrogen is a carrier it's not an energy it, it, it's a trans it, it'll it, so but the ways that we can get that is what we're talking about here and right now all of the hydrogen that we get comes out of the fossil fuel industry we get it from stripping and reforming methane and that's what sends our rocket ships up into space but okay. we know that as we have these breakthroughs in these utility scale electrolyzers that can 
actually take H2O, you know, two hydrogens, one oxygen, and split that with a lot of energy input. But through this process, if we get that energy from the sun and from the wind, we can even split seawater, I believe, and create uh, an energy that can can actually uh, become, <clears throat> you know, uh, the uh, the non polluting energy of the future. Wow. And I think that a lot of the industry is also taking a look at this and, and the government as well. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's very intriguing. I mean, that's way out beyond what I could even imagine. That's, that's unbelievable. So well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, hopefully it's believable because I know we, we want to have, we want to believe, we want to know that we can solve the problem. Yeah. And, and we want our children to know that we can solve the problem. That's that's the real issue here. You know, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember when climate change wasn't even anything we talked about. Back then it was called the weather, yeah. you know, and it was pretty normal, you know. Yeah. Uh, when I grew up on as a kid on Cape Cod and I'd run off the dock of my, you know, I was lucky enough to live on a lake and dive into the water. You know, I, I didn't, I all I thought about was nature and not getting bit by a snapping turtle, you know, yeah. not, not about whether or not I was going to live to, you know, be 30 years old because, uh, you know, of a forest fire but, that might eat up my house. But, okay, but Chip, you know, all, all seriousness here, do you, you know, okay, again, here's the parallels. So let me talk the ag thing first, and I'm going to ask you the question. Okay, so, you know, we're talking about trying to teach people how to reduce inputs and still uh, raise the same kind of uh, production there they're used to raising but with a much more higher nutrient dense food do you really think that the the big ag companies are just going to stand by the wayside and let this happen so it's the same thing right and the energy is is are the big are the big fossil fuel folks going to just stand on the sideline and let this happen or are they or are they getting involved well so far uh you know they're resisting it you know and but you know, but when we drag them to the table, you know, kicking and screaming, you know, with voter mandates, uh, then all of a sudden they go, oh, I can make more money doing this. That makes sense. You know, and then they start to do I mean, the best case in point there here in Colorado in 2004, uh, we put into place the first voter mandate of uh, of a uh, renewable portfolio standard in the nation. Um and and Exxon fought it tooth and nail, man. But 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 when we finally passed the law, and they said, okay, we're going to have to do this so much by 2020 or 2030. Well, they exceeded that like 10 years ahead of time, and then all of a sudden they're the leader and win in the nation and happy and proud of it because they're making so much money uh, by putting up wind turbines and and so forth. And so that's a good example, I think, of yeah. what will happen uh, with. You know, Conagra or, or or all of the big ones uh, in the ag. I mean, doesn't it, it? They kind of sleep a little better, right, at night because they 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 feel like they're offsetting some of the the doom and gloom, so to speak. Exactly, um, they do, and there's a lot of people within their corporate culture, you know, because there's you know tens of thousands of people that work for these companies um, that feel a lot better uh, going to work every day. Um, but at the same time, there's still you know the the executive you know, committees and branches that have to adhere to that short-term, you know, gain. Oh, so yeah. it's really fixed the fundamental flaw of, of this business. I think we're going to, um, 
we're not going to get where we need to go. So meaning that it's it's our it's our it's it's our laws that dictate, you know, uh, and mostly you know the SEC regs and so forth. And we just have to really get in there and, and try to fix the uh, yeah problems that exist that, that, yeah. that incentivize the wrong things essentially. Yeah, you know, in the movie Chip, I know you haven't seen it yet, but in the movie Common Ground, there's a um, there's a sequence in there about uh, lobbying. And th this this is going to blow your mind. Well, it may not blow your mind, but it blew my mind. There's 23 lobbyists per every congressperson in Washington, D.C. 23 to 1. What do you think the number is for the fossil fuel industry to the, to the bureaucrats? I have no idea, but I do know that it's the best democracy money can buy. Yeah. Isn't that something? It's it's just amazing how this is even allowed to happen. To, to to happen. So, well, I mean, we've come to the point in our culture in our world where one man can hold up three hundred fifty million people. Yeah, I mean, just in the case of what happened to a Speaker of the House the other day. Yeah, um, you know, so or 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 the or you know the approval of our generals that we that we need in our military, you know. Uh, so we, we have to fix this problem. This is this is not right. And, yeah. and I think it's reflecting over the problem that we have to fix in the physical world, too. We're, we're kind of crossing over the political and the and the physical here. You know, yeah. whether we talk about energy or that we talk about food and then we talk about politics. I mean, you know, let's talk about our friend uh, Tom Vilsack. You know, he's an R-Day alumni like you're about to become. Mm -hmm. And he came and was with us in his off years. You know, uh, I think it was 18 sat on the R day sage with the sun. It was a wonderful conversation. I, I really enjoyed, I had met Tom a few times, but I've really been, a, I've admired his. Leader. I like him. Me too. You know, um, I mean, he might be a little bit particular to those dairy products, you know, but Hey, that's where he comes from. You know, yeah. country. But, but he does a good job, I think in general. Well, yeah. And I, I think he, he listens and I think he genuinely tries to understand what you're trying to tell him or, or explain to him. And, you know, I think I've, I've met and talked with him twice. And I think he genuinely, if he had the power, he would have already implemented some of these things. Now these, these regenerative practices. Now I truly believe that, but you know, he is a cabinet member. So he has to go and, and, and sit down in front of the, the, the big people and he said, quite honestly, I usually get shot down. Right. So, well, yeah. folks, we, we've got to respect Chip's time here. He's got a tremendous event coming up. And actually, it's getting kicked off tomorrow. Um, so if you've got anyone with a last question or a last burning comment, now is the time. Because I'm going to ask Chip here to take us home and... and um, you know, I know we've talked about some 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 doom and gloom here and whatnot, but uh, there's good news on the horizon, right, Chip? That's right. It's a very 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 bright renewable future for all of us. Yeah. As we begin to implement these strategies that they're talking about in that beautiful movie that I haven't seen yet, Common Ground, but I did see Kiss the Ground, and I know it's a sequel to that. And and uh, Josh and Rebecca are good friends of mine, and they do wonderful work. Um, and I think that we can really uh, be encouraged by 
you know, uh, the heart and the soul of American people. I think that, uh, you know, we are known as being the greatest country on the earth and we, and we're going to live up to that. Yeah. You know, we are actually living up to that, even as, 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 all over the map as we might seem to be going right now. Um, well, that makes me feel good, Chip. Thank you, because we are we are a little loosey goosey right now. Uh, we seem to be unraveling at a lot, you know, a lot of the. Um, uh, I don't know. We're just unraveling in a lot of places right now. And I, but you know, things always turn when it seems to be the darkest, and and we maybe we're getting close here. So maybe we got a, a big turn coming. Well, I think so. I, I'd like to remind the audience uh, still looking at us that, uh, you know, when we were challenged by uh, World War II, all the young men went and, and they signed up. My dad was among them and they went out there and they did what they thought was best and they fought and some of them died, but they, they, they protected democracy yeah. and won that war. And we're going to win this one, too. I think, thank God they did. That's right. Yeah. Claudia, thank you for the comments. Uh, thanks. It, this has been a great conversation. Chip, thank you. I'm absolutely honored to be part of your event. Uh, this is going to be, uh, I, I'm not sure, Chip, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure I've ever been asked to come speak in an event with the power uh, that you've got lassoed here for this thing. Um, this is going to be, this is big. Um, is there any other way to see this chip other than live? Do you have to be in live in person or? or yeah, we were going to live stream it, but I think we're not going to do that. And we're just going to put it out afterwards. So, you know, just keep your okay. eyes and we're going to, we're going to record everything, every minute of it. And then we're going to, um, release it and we'll let y'all know. And then if you want to spread the word around on to your network, words, yeah. uh, but you know, you'll get your, um, you know, your panel, um, out there, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's how we're going to roll with this one. Yeah. That's awesome. That's all. And Jimmy, thank you. This has been a great conversation, Chip. I, I you know, I just got lucky and, and I was coming out and Robin connected us and this is going to be big, uh, Chip will probably have to, I'm going to probably ask to have you come on again. Uh, there, this, this folks, I mean, there, you got the two most important things here we're talking about tonight, food, and energy. I mean, that's what's driving this whole world. So you can't get much bigger than that. I mean, what is it, Chip? If 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 we were run out of food, is it like three days or so? Is it some such? It's some really small thing, small number. Yeah, it's uh, you know the grocery stores. If the supply chains break down, and there's a mad rush, uh, that's probably about an accurate number, yeah. I guess. Three days, three days, and then you're into total chaos. So. These are things that need 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 attention now, and we've got we've got good people uh, at at the head of this thing, both the energy sector and the ag sector. So, I feel pretty good. I feel real good about the future. And, and Chip, thank you for this energy conversation because I really feel a lot better about this. So, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, and thank you, thank you for your leadership, and thank you for your good work uh, and spreading. Uh, Spreading the farm green gospel, you know. It's yeah, really that's right. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, Chip, I'll see you in a, in a couple of days. Great. All right. All right. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Chip. Appreciate it. Everyone have a great week. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.